When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. Listening to WrestleMonics Radio with your host, Chris Harrison. Welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. Today is July 12th, 2016. I'm your host, Chris Harrington. I hope you're having a wonderful week recovering from your July 4th holiday, re- recovering from your Brexit vote, recovering from your UFC sale, recovering from your win over Mark Hunt, recovering from your loss of the South China Sea, whatever it is that you are uh, celebrating today. I hope it is going well for you, where you are and what you're doing. My name, of course, Chris Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at Mookie Ghana. I am a host of WrestleNomics Radio, which is produced every time the sun aligns with the moon, aligns with the planet Mars. But we are here today. We are here tonight. We are talking all the different news that I, I thought was interesting or relevant or intriguing to go on this uh, week. So I decided I would just kind of throw together a hodgepodge. I had teased it last weekend that I might work on one, and I absolutely did not. Instead, I uh, took a flight out to New York. I went to a Renaissance fair, went to a wedding, went to a party, uh, a lot of fun stuff in upstate New York. Saw some good friends I haven't seen in a long time. And I'm back here at home, and I thought, you know what, tonight, maybe I'll make good on that promise. If you would like to call up, and uh, make good on some of your own promises. You can find the number, of course, when you're uh, watching the uh, the clips that you're watching here. But for those of you who are listening to this live, it is 646-668-2171. Give it a call. Join us for the conversation here. I wanted to kind of cover some of the bigger topics that have come through uh, the last, let's say, I don't know, three months. So, you know, I, I had an update a little bit ago. 
So uh, this will be kind of covering the last couple months here of, of just things that I've written about or things that I've researched or looked at. One of the first ones I wanted to talk about, and of course I'm not really hitting these necessarily in order of importance, but rather just in order of how I have them written down in my script. One of the first ones was the PPTV sports deal with WWE signed in China. I've uh, talked a lot of, a lot of smack about WWE's ability to really move into China and do something in China. And I, I've been very, uh, critical of the idea that they would be able to really put boots to asses, as they would love to say, uh, and do something there to change their situation, even though they've been talking about it a lot. You know, it is, of course, one of the big countries that they have highlighted as uh, a high potential area for them. And they did, in fact, sign a deal with uh, PPTV Sports uh, on June 16th, 2016, of course, this was the press conference where Triple H showed up, John Cena showed up and spoke Mandarin. You had uh, the announcing that they were signing Bin Wang, uh, which unfortunately, when uh, was it CCTV Americas decided to have an interview with George Berrios, it got uh, subtitled as we signed a contract with Benoit, which uh, I don't think is true. Um, but they are going to be providing the three-hour Raw and the two-hour SmackDown in native language for in Chinese there. It's a streaming solution, but it's not the WWE Network. It's kind of this odd middle thing. Um, I don't know if a lot of people made the connection, but a few weeks later on July 1st, 2016, UFC signed a deal with the same distributor, PPTV Sports. And uh, it, it says a lot about this idea of using this streaming video as a way, uh, you know, when you look at what does China's Internet users use, you know, there's an estimated 600 million Internet users in China. And so, you know, reading up on this, I was finding that, you know, it's instant messaging, online news, search, search engines, online music, blogging, online video is huge, online games, online shopping, microblogging, social networking, online literature, online payments, email and online banking. But online video is a very high uh, usage rate in China. And so, of course, there's a ton of piracy that goes on. There. I talked to one analyst who covers WWE, and, and one of the things that he had to say to me was just he had seen, I think, some internal search information that WWE had shared with him or that his firm had collected. And it found that, you know, there was a lot of usage of WWE terms and interest there in his mind. Whether or not you know, I, it will, it will totally translate. I, I always have my doubts, you know, same with the WWE network. The WWE network is primarily in international forms to me, a way to distribute the current content, the current product, engage with the people that are currently uh, with the promotion or at least aligned with it in a things you know obviously things like edge and christian aren't on television every week but it, their show has been very popular uh the challenge is you know if you didn't come from a culture that had a lot of wrestling history are you really interested in that 80s footage or the 90s footage or you know the the, the monday night wars is that going to translate in the same way so i always wonder about that but pptv big deal for china uh it is not getting the wwe network in china it's not getting a uh uh a, even a censored version, as, as far as I understand, the government is not even censoring uh, this type of action more than, you know, they ever censor things. I have talked about before my concerns when I look at some of the other streaming uh, companies that have, you know, gone into this realm with uh, China and just the incredible amount of uncertainty that has been created around what will and will not be allowed in, in uh, these kind of services. When you look at it, you know, 
if you look at all the hoops that the Walt Disney Company, for instance, jumped through in order to uh, get their new Disneyland in Shanghai open, you will see that they had to backtrack years after a real small film that involved Tibet had been released, and it, it made the government incensed to no end. And it took years for, for Disney to really build up back up the clout that they wanted to. Uh, there was a lot of um, you know back and forth. Even Disney's streaming service was just kind of mysteriously shut down a few months ago. Uh, I, I know a couple other companies have run into that as well, where the government just suddenly cracked down heavily in streaming services. So really the idea of an open streaming service network that's just going to be allowed, it's really no rhyme or reason. One reason Netflix has not gone into it. Uh, China, of course, is this area that WWE is saying, well, look at India. Look at how we went into India, was it 10 years ago? And now India is providing somewhere on the realm of, you know, more than $20 million a year uh, when you think about it, maybe maybe even up close to 30 by the end of their contract here, above 30 actually by the end of their contract of uh, television rights fees. Well, China's, you know, like that development curve, uh, and we expect to get that. But, of course, that's important to say, well, you started that curve in 2005 or 2001. You know, I, I couldn't even tell you when the first deal with China and WWE, I mean, India and WWE was. And now it's 2015, 2016, and now we're seeing really the fruits of that labor. But whether or not there's going to be that same content um, absorption, that same willingness to pay for premium content, for streamed content, for over the for the for for broadcast content or whatever it's going to be, that's a big question mark in China. Um, PPTV is going to leverage the digital and social media platform. So we are going to see, you know, a WWE Weibo presence. And I believe that's already even started. They're going to launch and manage a website in China. I've seen that website. And uh, there's the September 10th, 2016 live event in Shanghai that will be going on for China. So they're, they're hitting a lot of the buzzwords. I don't think this China deal is going to be all that big when you really put to it. I mean, if you think about your... Canada deal, I would say the Canada deal for WWE in terms of dollars is probably under $10 million, maybe as little as maybe six, seven million dollars. And whether China was even a third of that, you know, two million dollars. I, I don't know. I don't know the numbers at all for China, but I, I don't think they're big numbers. I think it's more hype than it is uh, volume. But I think it's an interesting opportunity for them. And of course, uh, it's not something they should definitely say no to. Uh, the challenge with, with China is going to be, of course, uh, getting to that next step and getting somewhere uh, and whether or not that's going to involve some kind of local investment, local players. You know, we saw the uh, the two groups that were bidding for UFC, the, the Dali and Wanda group, the Chinese media, China media capital group, uh, both of those that were trying to get into the UFC bidding uh, as examples of there's a lot of money that's sitting there in China. We saw Bruno Wu's uh, Seven Stars company invest heavily in, in the U on Demand, which was Shane McMahon's old company uh, that he's no longer the CEO of, but I believe he's still on the, the board of directors. Um, but at the same time, before anyone jumps to conclusions, no, I don't think Shane McMahon had anything to do with the WWE PPTV deal. And two, uh, Shane McMahon actually has a clause in his YOD contract that says that he's not supposed to be doing anything that has to do with pay-per-view media in China. He has a non-compete. So uh, I don't know if streaming media really qualifies, but if I think a little bit of what I've seen the YOD model 
to be. I would think it would. So I, I really don't think Shane McMahon had anything to do with this deal per se. Um, but just it, it is a, a notable deal and something that I expect uh, WWE is going to talk the crap out of uh, during their Q2 call, which I expect somewhere around July 28th to August second it's really going to depend as someone pointed out to me when they did the q1 call they had it i think on a thursday which they've almost never done a, a call on a day like that so that was a real shock to everybody so it, it's hard to guess right now what exactly is wwe going to do when their next call is it has not been announced yet um george barrios can't go through more than a, a 11 minutes of a wrestlemimics show without the drinking game of, of mookie saying something about george barrios uh he was speaking at uh, I believe it was the Needham Emerging Markets Conference. I, I could be mistaken about which one it was, but that was one of the conferences he was at recently. And uh, my good friend Brandon Howard, a decorative drop on Twitter, uh, he did me a favor and he transcribed some of what what George said in response to a question about some TV contracts. And uh, some of the information I think in the past has been vaguely known, but not necessarily connected by the company and so this was the first time we actually heard a company official essentially spell it out in very clean terms so i'm going to read what george had to say so he said on the renewal cycle we've got deals through 2018 our three largest deals which are u.s uk and china actually go through 2019 so the u.s deal is all three of them are five-year deals the u.s deal will go through the third quarter of 2019 and the uk and the india through the fourth quarter and uh well that's obviously important just put that in perspective you have three enormous deals. You have the U.S. deal, which is somewhere in the range of probably over 130 to 145 million, depending on whether you're looking at this year or next year in TV rights. You have the U.K. deal, which is hovering under probably 30 million, um, a little less this year, probably getting closer to 30 million next year. And you have that India deal, which I think that one's probably got the biggest escalators in it of all. And that one's sitting north of 20 million for sure. And uh, when it started in, in 2015, and you know by the end of the deal, I expect it to be closer to you know 35, 40 million. So I, I think that one has a real big escalator on it. And so we're we're looking at somewhere around 25 million dollars. So those three, you know, 135, a 30 million, and a a 25 million deal, give or take, you know, two or three million dollars on each. Um, those are going to be interesting for uh, looking at what is the media landscape look like in 2019. And if anyone tells you that they know what it is, I would run from that person because they are either a witch, a clairvoyant, or a liar. Because it's it's hard to say what what the landscape would look like at that point. Will there be more bidders? Will there be less bidders? I was just talking to somebody today, saying how, in my view, WWE's um, like they put out, they probably ran off some potential bidders with their high high hopes and high talk and big big you know promises in the lead up to the domestic rights deal, which ended up being about one and a half times what they had previously. Um, and at the same time, they decided to launch the WWE Network, which ultimately, you know, I think if we did the post mortem on, we would say number one, they were too ambitious with their goals of what they set out in January of 2014 at that conference. They were uh, blinded by the fact that they were not going to be able to have an enforceable six-month contract. And so they needed to initially just kind of scope this thing, something that did not have a commitment element. Um, I feel like the global uh, launch was very much rushed 
as a result of the fact that they came in with such disappointing numbers. You know, we saw such a huge stock drop uh, right after the WrestleMania numbers were, were announced. And at the same time, we saw such a huge consumption of WrestleMania still on traditional pay-per-view in that first year. And so that put together said to me, well, A, the television rights contracts, which Vince himself has admitted, were probably negatively impacted by the launch of the WWE Network right beforehand, uh, meaning less money than they could have. B, they scared off a lot of bidders, and in the end, they really only had NBCU as as someone who was going to give them a, a reasonable offer. Uh, case, uh, we had the issue that WWE came out of the gate with the 99 price point, and they came out of the gate with the network. And we understand why they did that. Of course, you wanted to get that big consumption. You wanted to get that big adoption front of saying, look, this pre-event. However, they put themselves in the corner. A, price and be on uh, content because there's really nowhere lower they can go than 999. There's really nothing greater they can offer than WrestleMania. So coming right out of the gate with essentially guns blazing, short of the free WrestleMania campaign, which they hit in 2016, uh, there really just isn't a lot of upside in terms of what they were. So I, I have to say, when I look back at 2014, I understand that they're just trying to swallow the elephant and get through it all in terms of launching this, taking on those initial losses and whatnot. But I really think that they did themselves a huge disfavor in the way that they ran that television deals contract. And when you put it in perspective, essentially they have from 2015 to 2019 all locked up, 2018 for sure. And during that time, their goal has to be just acquire, acquire, acquire subscribers because they're subsidizing it with the large television rights fees and 2016 is looking to be a profitable and good year for them but still in context of the pre-launch EBITDA, OBITDA, whatever you want to EBITDA, you will still see that WWE was doing much better in those five years from 2006 to 2010 than they've been doing from 2011 to 2015. Now 2016 could hopefully be their breakthrough year, beyond breakthrough, you know, it'd be this huge thing for them, but there's a lot of questions about, you know, how do you get that WWE network to continue to grow, especially after you've saturated your markets at 75% domestic still, even though they talk all about the international uh, social media being so heavily international, it does not sound like they expect it to ever get any closer than 50-50. So with all that in mind, you have to wonder what is their opportunity they have for pricing the WWE network, changing that. And George was asked that question at that conference there. And he said, quote, we're comfortable with the price of the WWE Network for the current offering. We like the simplicity of being able to talk about one price around the world. Lie. I'll get back to that. Uh, We feel good about that. As you look to the future, anyone with a business background knows that you can segment the demand curve. You can generate more revenue. But I think it's less about raising the price, and it's really about creating different offerings or tiers within the product. Can you create a lower price tier forever, for instance, that allows people who aren't ready to consume the 180 hours a month a year, but want to consume some. Can you put the product there? And similarly, given that we are a 360 company that touches our audience in a variety of ways, can you do something through a higher price point? Those are things we think about, work on, and give a lot to. I could see doing something along those lines. Now, this is remarkable for several reasons. Number one, uh, the 9.99 is not the same price around the world as we know in Great Britain. It's 9.99 pounds, 12.99 in Ireland in euros. So it's almost it was a 50 percent. Um, uh, uh, 
premium essentially on it. So saying it's one price around the world, same with Astro in the Philippines is different. Canada is different. Uh, a couple of the Middle East with uh, uh, OSM is different. So, I mean, there, there is different price points around the world, but yes, they are true in the fact that they're trying to use that 999 marketing. Um, creating a lower price tier is interesting in the idea that to say that maybe you could get that consumption coming from, I guess people who just want to watch, you know, WrestleMania once a year, is that the idea that you can buy it and you can just see one pay-per-view? Uh, I guess you can have that, you know, use and burn type thing. But we saw typically WWE's model has been obtain the person and basically just get them to get it, become a reoccurring subscriber. I think the, the efforts to use things like gift cards and whatnot are much more interesting the efforts to create a tier below 999 considering the profit margins that they're dealing with right now on the WWE network. Uh, at the same time, I've always pushed. And when you read the early literature, they were very much pushing the idea that the WWE network would be somewhere between 11 and $15. So $10 really seems really low, especially because they, they like to think of it as breaking that $10 barrier. But at the same time, they also see it as uh, the result of their complex conjoint analysis. I, I will always argue that when you're dealing with a niche market, so it's not Netflix, it's you know, it's the niche hardcore wrestling version of Netflix, which does not have the same uh, broad-based appeal, that you are not going to need to capture everyone. You just need to capture the consumers that actually are out there and they want. And the one they proved through house shows is that while average North American attendance stays pretty flat at about 6,000 a year for the last five years, continue to extract more and more revenue from those people because they are largely priced inelastic. And that's something WWE has known since the days of pay-per-view. So uh, the fact that they really price themselves so low going from a 60 to $670 uh, value proposition down to a $10 value proposition uh, means that they just have to acquire so many more people. Their methodology this year, of course, was free WrestleMania and will convert them into paid subscribers, you know, get up to one, one and a half million people. But you really question what that, that ceiling is. Is it two million? Is it uh, two and a quarter? Can they even get there? Will What will be that difference maker for the next half million? Is that really going to be international growth or is that going to be uh, a domestic growth? When you see those challenges going on with the television ratings, it is always a challenge, 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 challenge. It is always a dilemma to say, if our ratings continue to sink, you know, if we can get under 3 million people watching Raw, and we know that's only about 2 million households, less than 2 million households, and we already have a million people, you know, 900,000, something like that, the last number, 75% that are, are subscribing, how much more upside is there? So it's really intriguing to see whether or not we have to go to the mega bundle, you know, where it's the MLBAM bundle and you get your NHL games, you get your baseball games, you get your wrestling, whether it goes to a supported content model where, you know, it's part of CBS All Access or something like that, or whether you just keep finding new people that are willing to uh, subscribe to a wrestling channel. So uh, I think some of the stuff they're doing, you know, the Cruiserweight Classic and whatnot are really intriguing. They're really fun. They're really uh, uh, informative programming that I'm going to be excited about. But the reality is digital rights for WWE are tied up for the next four or five years. So they're in, they're in a very certain place. I've already talked a little bit about um, 
some of the, you know, the estimates for the largest contracts for WWE for the UK, the US, the Indian, Canada. Um, but uh, one thing I haven't talked about is about the international division and specifically the fact that uh, Garrett Meyer has left WWE. He was with the company for about three years and um, they, they brought him on in March, 2013 and they gave him that, that mission of growing WWE's brand and business outside the U.S. with a primary focus on expanding the company's international television distribution agreements and managing the continued advancement of WWE's international licensing, live events, digital, and publish, publishing operations. And before that, he had worked at Spotify and iHeartRadio, and of course, he's a German. Um, so when we look at, you know, what the legacy of what's happened in the international division? Well, you know, the international division exploded in 2015 compared to 2014, but largely because there was such a huge rights fee increase uh, going on. In addition to the fact that, you know, they have been, um, even though they cut back a little bit on international touring from say 2006 to 2010 compared to where they've been in the last five years, they have been extracting more and more revenue from those international tours. And so uh, we, we see that international business has, has, you know, especially in the UK, where it jumped from 41 million in 2014 to 76 million in, in 2015, we do see that international business has has really um, evolved under Garrett Myers. And so he was considered the president of the WWE International Division. And that's an interesting title if you really look at the WWE org chart, because everyone else was an executive vice president, was an EVP. Uh, you know, some people could be chief this or chief that. So you have you know, Barrios is the chief financial officer. He is the chief strategist. But no one else I can recall is the president of, the w, of a WWE division except for Garrett Meyer. And what happened is Garrett Meyer gone. And this was a story that I will take credit for breaking, at least in the wrestling news world, um, that he had left the company. And, and I did interact with WWE to confirm that story. Uh, them if it was true and getting some clarification on you know what the schedule was for the next you know how it was going to be reorganized um when Merritt Meyer uh left the company you know you, you would have seen him if you watched the WWE uh business partner summit that they do every year at Wrestlemania and he comes on on that and just even his presentation style is so different than what you see with Barrios and Wilson and and um some of the other in terms of he was very carefully scripted word to word what he said and uh, maybe it's just the German in him but uh, he just was such a different fit and it makes me wonder if there has been a little bit of a, a shake up of a power play of a, a disruption or a change in how WWE is being formatted uh, from a corporate side with you know essentially the Barrios faction winning out with this this reconfiguration uh, WWE had said that, you know, Mexico, Brazil, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, UAE were important places for them. They had long-term uh, goals to be in India and China, and international growth is a huge priority for them. So I was really shocked that they left. I was shocked when I, you know, brought this subject up to people uh, outside of the company, and they did not know he left, even weeks after my story had been published. Uh, and, and so I, I think that there's something there in the fact that, you know, this guy did secure some huge deals, in international distribution deals. We're talking about, you know, the deal that we saw in uh, India. We're talking about other things like that, that, that he was part of. And so the fact that he did not 
um, play a role uh, in this PPTV announcement. You know, Jay Lee is the new WWE vice president and general manager of Greater China. And he, Garrett Meyer, was quoted when he was appointed in April, saying a presence in China is critical to the company's future growth. And they just announced that CCTV deal, and Garrett Meyer was known to be seen. Um, he did a whole bunch of those business summits, not just in the U.S. when he came to WrestleMania, but he did a bunch in Europe for the very first time. And so I think his role and his ability to kind of play in Europe was really interesting and, and intriguing. And it kept him out of the U.S. spotlight. You know, we would always have George Berrios at conferences talking about international growth instead of the head of, of international, which says something. Um, he he did um, even a tour in, in the Middle East. He went to Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia and Dubai uh, in terms of the new touring that they did for WWE. He talked about, you know, they had a Walmart. They set up a direct-to-retail agreement for Mexico. They they did events in Germany and France and Italy and the UK for that partner summit like I talked about. And they did a whole lot with India and the OSS and ZTV. So I, I think, you know, it's interesting to see that Ed Wells is now going to be the executive vice president, back to that EVP title of international that is going to be uh, taking essentially the the control of that WWE international roles, but um, a different kind of structure in terms of how it reports up to where Garrett, I believe, reported to Vince before. And Wells, I doubt, is reporting directly to Vince. Uh, Wells joined the company actually through the WWE Tokyo office in 2008. And so he's been with the company now for, for several years, not say as many years as, um, uh, is it Andrew? I'm trying to remember his last name. He, he worked for WWE international and he had started as an employee with WWE in the mid eighties and then carried all the way through until the two thousands. Um, but WWE's international business, you know, they set a record last year for their total revenue at, at $659 million. And almost a quarter of it, $170 million, comes from outside of North America. Now, the majority of that quarter, so, you know, of that $170 million, 76 of it, 77, 76.7, I want to get the exact, uh, came from the United Kingdom. And there was just such a huge growth when you think of $659 million that in 2015, that's $116 million more than they did in 2014. So what was the key to growing that amount of money? Well, it came from TV rights and the WWE Network. Now, the WWE Network expanded internationally. We finally have a UK channel. We finally got it in, in the places that we had talked about in, the, in India and in Japan and Germany and some of those very last holdouts. Um, but we know that the $55 million we got in 2015 in TV rights played a huge role. And we know the network segment at $44 million played a huge role, but we got um, almost half of the growth that came from WWE, almost 46% came from outside of us and Canada last year. So even though it's only about a quarter of the revenue, it drove half the growth. And that's really important to focus on here where Asia Pacific grew to 50 million last year, up from 41, uh, Latin America was at eight million, up from six million, and uh, like I mentioned, the UK was at seventy-six million versus uh, forty-one the year before. Um, WWE started its new B Sky B contract, rights in twenty fifteen. Uh, the UK contract was, you know, almost three times the old deal. They had the the big contract with Ten Sports in India. These are all things that I think were really important for for Garrett Meyer. Um, 
his legacy. And of course, when we saw that new Fijian Islands uh, announcement just the other day on, uh, I think it was Cell or something of that nature is the name of the company, um, about WWE's distribution agreement there, we saw Ed speaking. And that would be exactly the sort of thing we used to see Garrett Meyer speaking at. And of course, Garrett Meyer was not at the PTV announcement in China either. Uh, WWE Network rolled out everywhere in August 2014, except for when they started in the UK in January 2015, which got them to their million subscriber number. The Middle East in February 2015 through OSN, Malaysia in, in July 2015, uh, Italy in July 2015, India in November 2015, the Germany, Austria, Switzerland sort of area in January 2016, Japan January 2016. And we've seen international subscribers grow from you know less than 35,000 at the end of 2014 to uh, more than quarter million, you know, 269,000 by the end of 2015. So we've seen it grow a lot, but what's really unusual is just to say, what a big change in WWE that's been quietly, quietly. Done. And it's just in my mind, the sort of thing that we should, you know, you really should hold WWE's feet to the flame a little bit to ask what's going on when you're making these big changes. Uh, uh, how are you communicating this to people? And what was, what was the, what was going on behind the scenes that, that led to it? Uh, speaking of behind the scenes and speaking of the UK, Brexit, you know, every, everybody's favorite word, uh, the, the European Union membership referendum held in the United Kingdom. And when you think about just to what I was saying, what is UK's influence on the business? 87% growth year over year for the UK. And a lot of that came from the TV contract, but some of it came from just the fact that WWE has been making more money in the United Kingdom and continues to have it as its largest international marketplace. So Laura Martin had written some comments about, oh, what's going to happen with Brexit? And I read these comments, and Needleman and company analyst who's been covering WWE, you know, at tell you since the days Linda was president, um, she, she said a couple things, and I was just like, that just doesn't sound right. So I investigated. I reached out to WWE, and I got some confirmation that, no, some of the, some of the inferences were not correct. The first one being that WWE's contract with B-Sky-B was in U.S. dollars. What, what, was it in U.S. dollars or was it in, in pounds sterling? And uh, Loris basically was inferring that currency devaluation would affect WWE, and they should expect less money from these contracts going forward that's not true they're guaranteed contracts which means a the ratings don't matter but b it means uh they're written in u.s dollars and you know again this is me the guy who focuses on wwe 24 7 all the time uh classics on demand uh focuses on it all the time who remembers you know hey what about this document what about this deal and pulls those sort of things out so for me I'll, when i heard this and i thought is this true is this not true i thought about the lawsuit they had with the Thailand CTH uh, cable tie holdings content company where WWE sued them because while they had uh, basically agreed to pay them money for TV rights, they never ponied up the money for TV rights. And so WWE went to court and won a judgment of 23.4 million in March of 2016. Uh, the WWE had used this tie deal as one of the ones that they bragged about saying, Hey, it's seven times higher than our previous deal in this country. But, you know, they didn't really ever mention the fact that they didn't actually get any of the dollars. 
But if you look at the deal, which was filed as one of the exhibits in the lawsuit, you'll see that in section A1 of the terms of payment on the provisions of payment section on page 15, it clearly says all payments made to WWE pursuant to this agreement shall be in U.S. dollars. I reached out to WWE with this note, and essentially they confirmed that they are getting U.S. dollars for their B Sky B deal. And so while Brexit may or may not cause an economic downturn in the UK and cause a currency devaluation, uh, that specifically not deal. Now, it's important to keep in mind, like I was throwing around numbers earlier, the UK deal is somewhere in the range of 25 to $35 million, you know, somewhere in there. WWE made about $75 million, $76 million last year from the United Kingdom, which means more than half the money they made did not come from their television deal. And therefore, that half of money is, in fact, uh, going be showing up as WWE Network subscriptions, which are a £9.99 sterling. It's going to be showing up in their merchandise and their live tour and everything that's associated with that and any licensing fees or, or anything else that's going on over there. So there will be some questions about whether those will be hurt by um, any kind of an economic downturn. There will also be questions about how does tax policy work in the UK going forward? Will WWE not choose to charge a premium for the WWE network if, say, the VAT was taken away. Um, we know that the UK was the number two marketplace for the WWE network. And while WWE would not confirm to me that it's uh, still number two, there's no reason to believe it's not number two. They also list it as one of their highest countries. You know, they always like to say, well, there's the UK, there's Canada, there's the US, and there's a whole lot of great places. Years ago, they had a list of um, which ones were the top countries. But unfortunately, this was before India, Germany, Japan, some of these other places came online. So it's hard to judge what is those other marketplaces going to be. Um, it will be you know, interesting to see if NXT could do extra tours in the UK, whether or not uh, we see any of these partnerships that they kind of formed with the uh, Cruiserweight Classic, any of those those business dealings that they're doing with these feds get any closer and whether there's any implications about that. Um, again, I'm talking through what's happening here on uh, WWE business. If you're listening live, you're interested in chatting with me, you can always log into the chat uh, on the uh, website. You can always hit me up on Twitter at Mookie Ghana, or you can even call in 646-68-2171. I am just looking now to see if there's anyone in the chat. We are we've got online user number one, WrestleNomics Radio, and no one else. So uh, it gives you an idea of the, the massive appeal of talking about professional wrestling business implications on the wider world. Uh, WWE's loss this year, you know, they've done really well. <laughs> That's all I can say is that they, they have really succeeded in terms of limiting the very enormous ramifications of, you know, a shareholder lawsuit accusing them of misleading people, accusing Stephanie McMahon of undue enrichment. Uh, they had the Thai lawsuit over the fact that they hadn't paid their bills. They had the CTE lawsuit where essentially they're 
possible to not only first uh, limit the scope to help all in Connecticut courts, be able to limit uh, who basically had standing and which time period uh, claims were, were being uh, reviewed for. And essentially, we're at the, down to the point where essentially almost all the claims were thrown out. They're just basically going through Evan Singleton and Big Vito LaGrasso's uh, remaining claims around um, a, a very specific time period and whether or not they were given information about the possibility of traumatic brain injuries and all the uh, machinations that have gone into then who has to be able to be deposed. Do you have to depose uh, somebody who's a wrestler also as an officer? Do you have to depose people more than once? Can you depose Christopher Nowinski? Is, is the uh, summons that he received accurate? Is the information that he would give beyond something that he would give in a um, – uh, on public articles is the Boston Globe essentially doing research and hit pieces for uh, the Kairos's uh, law firm to uh, paint the concussion legacy uh, foundation, whatever you want to call that company uh, in, in a negative light since WWE has been giving them a lot of money. And since uh, they have kind of backed off their whole uh, mission of, of collecting their brains and studying them. Uh, so there's been a lot of interesting things and, and just the rulings that have been coming out around who does and doesn't have to testify, specifically the most recent one on the 28th of June, which said that uh, that Chris Winsky didn't have to testify because uh, there was no – essentially he worked for WWE during the time with the SmackDown Your Vote, and they're not saying that was relevant. His book has the knowledge that you need. Uh, you can – he's made lots of public statements and he doesn't have any identified acts or information that he would use that would be beyond what, you know, could already be received at that time. So it's been intriguing following that and even some of the more recent developments around whether or not uh, WWE's claims about whether or not the Concussion Legacy Foundation can uh, substantiate what was said about the condition of Chris Benoit's brain and the chain of custody and things of that nature to uh, discuss what Dr. Amalu uh, talked about back in 2007. And as Dave Meltzer will point out is what Chris Nowinski used to grandstand really himself prominence and attention at the time. So uh, interesting subjects, amazingly successful year, Jerry McDivitt, uh, Kay and Al Gates, I'm sure is having a very profitable year. Uh, on the basis of all of that. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, just one of the developments that goes on with WWE is, is how do they do trademarks? How do they deal with wrestling uh, copyrights? And it's interesting because you can learn a lot about, um, A, what projects WWE is working on, what projects WWE is abandoning, uh, lag time, which can be enormous between when something is proposed and when something actually goes into effect. Uh, the the information that's really out there about what WWE cares about, and I was one I was really curious about is would they spend time basically working on trademarks if they thought somebody was going to leave the company very soon? So I started off by just going through and saying who is on the WWE roster right now on the main roster and what's the status of their copyright. And their trademark, I should really say. My wife always yells at me as a copyright when the word is actually trademark. And of course, trademarks are very much a use it or lose it situation. The idea is that they cannot be uh, confused with someone else's trademark who 
has a similar, you know, not just, it's important to point out, it's not just do they have a similar uh, exact words, but does it sound the same? Like they were talking about how Asuka, um, Asuka, her, her trademark wasn't going to be given to them because it was too close to another company where the pronunciation was very similar, even though the spelling was very different. Um, when I went through all the records and looked at the trademarks, there were some really interesting ones. For instance, AJ Styles still owns his trademark. It was reassigned on January 2015. Even though it was originally filed by TNA, it was reassigned to, to Alan Jones, to AJ Styles, and it appears it's there. Um, you can see the same thing is going on uh, when there was one other person who owned their trademark, uh, Samoa Joe. Samoa Joe is trademark is owned by you know joe's real name and was something he registered a long time ago the miz owns his own trademark and uh mike mizzenin uh owns and gets to decide that information so that's intriguing because in the past wwe doesn't care (laughs) to deal with someone who wants to have their own trademark really clear in the contract that when you sign your WWE contract. Essentially, they own and control your trademark, your character, all those things while you're under contract with them. And of course, you're getting a cut of the merchandising and whatnot. As an example, the the thing that was really interesting is say someone like Mark Henry. Mark Henry's real name is Mark Henry. And when WWE was going back and forth with the trademark office, which says we need to figure out if this name identifies a particular individual a living individual, yes or no. And WWE, in lieu of submitting a signature, which is something they did actually for Claudio, uh, they actually submitted a, um, for, for um, a Cesaro, I should say, but they, of course it was signed under his real name, Claudio Keston. Um, in July 15, uh, July 13th, 2015, WWE submitted a form that had Claudio Castanoli's signature about being Antonio Cesaro. Whereas for Mark Henry, they did not actually submit his signature they submitted a copy of his contract. This was back in October of 2008. Uh, they submitted a copy of his re-signed contract that basically said, here's the contract he signed. In the contract, it says that he gives us the right. Therefore, we have the rights to do this. Um, John Cena has signed his own name. Uh, he signed it way back in October of 2004. Um, Randy Orton signed in October of 2004, saying that it's him. Uh, Shane McMahon signed in May of five saying it's his own uh, signature, but for 99% of the other people, what in fact, WWE, WWE has responded with is names, portraits and, and or signatures on the mark does not identify a particular living individual. And the argument they use, and uh, I've, I've mentioned before, my wife actually worked on a law school paper about this is that essentially it's a character. Now a character like Peter, and is not a person, but rather it's a role that's being played by different people. And so the, the trademark office shouldn't be pushing for an individual because it's just a character. And, and when you read read her paper, you'll see this goes back to this whole long history about Corky the Clown and all these other – Lee Trevino comes up and uh, uh, Johnny Carson and all, all sorts of different things, which are interesting. But uh, what happens sometimes is – the examiner will look at the trademark application and they'll write in, hey, we think it's Taylor Rodunda. This is who Bo Dallas is. And what was really funny was that uh, uh, 
WWE will basically be presented with a Wikipedia page that says, here's all these examples showing Bo Dallas is this guy. How are you saying it's not this guy? And WWE will usually just respond with, it is not person, <laughs> this is not a living individual. And they seem to have just taken the, the, the tact of saying, we're just going to say it's not a person and go for it. And it will be really intriguing to see if anybody who uses their real names, uh, uh, Chris Jericho is another one who has actually, who owns a Chris Irvine uh, trademark. But what was funny was his, I should take that back. The entertain, there's an entertainment one that Chris Irvine owns. And then there seems to be a WWE one that uh, they claim does not in, uh, identify the individual. And so sometimes you even get these confusing things going on and wwe just got a question about uh like i mentioned bo dallas they got a question about eric rowan uh looks like they had to give up on the fandango one because the fandango llc uh the the movie tickets company challenge they had all this litigation just looks like they might be just walking away from it right now they abandoned it in october of 2015 which again if it was me i would be a little worried if i was fandango uh, same with Jack Swagger. They gave up in May of 2011 because there's a Minnesota musician who goes by the name Jack Swagger that had registered it. Um, they're being asked right now whether Kalisto is a particular individual. They're being asked whether Luke Harper is. They're being asked whether Roman Reigns is. They're being asked whether Xavier Woods is, Tyler Breeze, um, uh, Braun Strowman, Brock Lesnar, Devon Dudley. And that will be really intriguing to see how they respond to all of those, especially a Brock Lesnar, which, again, I'm pretty sure that's his real name. And he's a very high profile individual for the, uh, just claiming is, is not, in fact, an actual thing beyond them. So I'll be really intrigued to see if they, they do that. Um, they've also just submitted, you know, trademarks for Aiden English, Apollo Crews, Baron Corbin, uh, Big Cass, Colin Cassidy. It was under the name Colin Cassidy. Enzo under just the name Enzo Epico. Um, uh, Carl Anderson, Connor, Luke Gallows, uh, all these people, uh, Simon Gotch, Victor, they just trademarked all those people. Um, same with uh, Seamus, they need to file a explanation whether or not he's a, a there's a name to the clothing uh, trademark that they used. And uh, I'm really curious to see how this goes. I need to, to kind of follow up and see if any of these have changed. And whether or not there's any trend around, you know, who have they let go and, and how did the trademark timing go? They, the Bo Dallas one, actually, I think they just abandoned, essentially. And they're actually waiting to revive the application in June of 2016, which always raises the question of, you know, were they thinking about letting someone go or not? Uh, we have seen some people uh, certainly uh, disappear after this, but we've also seen some people get renewed who, who weren't sticking around, like uh, I think, uh, and so forth. I was going to give an example there and say Hornswoggle, but I actually think Hornswoggle, uh, they, they did abandon it. The last thing I was going to touch on here in my first set of uh, kind of subjects during hour one of WrestleNomics Radio, and I've, I'm getting some good questions on Twitter here, which means someone's listening to me and means my mic is on, which makes me feel good. Because uh, when you're doing a solo show, you have yourself, your basement, your heater your uh, can of pop and your dog running up and down the stairs to keep you company. Every now and then you wonder if you're howling into the darkness and you got disconnected from the internet three hours ago. Um, the last subject I want to talk on in the beginning of hour one, which if I close out hour one, have a strong show, that's a good show for me is to get a full hour of WrestleMomics radio excitement down was the UFC sale. And I think honestly, in terms of business moves, you know, this is right up there with, uh, 
kind of the WCW folding, right? Because huge business implications in terms of $4 billion, $4 billion. ESPN called it the most expensive transaction for an organization in sports history, Uh, $4 billion. And it's a coalition of WME, IMG, Silver Lake Partners, KKR, MSD Capital. And um, William Morris Agency is essentially, you know, WME. And it's really funny because WWE stock price jumped up right on Monday, right, right off the bat. And uh, they had a 4% rise throughout the day. They finished the day almost at $20.50. First time since October 28th, 2015 that they've been over 20 bucks. Um, huge rise yesterday. Today, uh, I'll check right now, but uh, last time I looked, they were pretty much dead flat, which to me, again, says a lot about, you know, this was probably an influence coming from the UFC sale in terms of people's expectations and, and understanding and valuation of WWE. But uh, the fact that there was very little, you know, rise today says to me that essentially we saw the extraction of of, uh, the value that they were going to get, the rub at this point at least. And that was about 4% of stock price. Let's look to see what uh, WWE did today. Real time here, I see that they lost, oh, actually 1.8%. They finished the day at $20.09. So up for, for... uh, the last two days, but down from a little bit from where they started the day. But uh, so down almost 2%, again, a day where S&P was not even up 1%. And likewise, yesterday was was not heavily impacted. So intriguing to me just to see kind of that, um, the motion of what happened to WWE and what happened to uh, the UFC sale impact from that. Specifically, there was news outlets including CNN, Matt Farmer took a snapshot and it, and the, the CNN said report WWE buys UFC for $4 billion uh, because they meant WME, not WWE. I found an inquisitor article about that, which is not hard to do because you can find an inquisitor article about pretty much any piece of garbage out there uh, because it's not really a curated site. But um, I thought that was fascinating that, you know, there was that opportunity that they, they could have lost, um, you know, they, they, that people could have been confused who it was. And, and that would lead to a little bit of a bump, but and not a, a day-over-day, several-day bump, especially when it's clear it's, it's William Morris Agency, which had merged with the Endeavor Agency in 2009 and then uh, acquired the International Management Group, which is an event services group, in 2013. And they have plans for UFC, right? So UFC 200, high-water point for them. Uh, obviously, with the John Jones uh, departure, being able to get silver was a nice, nice recovery, but still says a lot about um, kind of the difficulty to find top, top, top stars. You know, they brought in Brock Lesnar, for goodness sake, someone who was contracted to WWE, which says a lot about how things have been going for them. Uh, Conor McGregor not on the show, but fighting soon. And Ronda Rousey nowhere in sight. The, what's been going on with them, this talent agency is taking over. And so we're at a high watermark for uh, UFC right now. But the question is, you know, when you're paying $4 billion, you got to expect that you can really grow this from where it is today. And growing it is going to require, you know, TV contracts. And the question about being whether live sports TV contracts, uh, can UFC get what WWE can't? Can they resonate in a way that WWE has not with advertisers? You know, WWE is bragging about the new advertisers they've been able to bring on this year through uh, 
uh, NBCU USA's kind of uh, leadership. And WWE, of course, doesn't get a dime of that advertising money. But um, will UFC have a big opportunity to renegotiate their their television deals in the, the near future here? Will they have a big opportunity to use their talent agency contacts to get people on the talk shows and to get people on the movies and to get people into those um, sitcoms? anything else that is going to make, give them that presence and that exposure that is going to make them seem like big time players and, and push the, the hype UFC star even higher, you know, obviously just seeing kind of how the, the near implosion of the Conor McGregor relationship just speaks to a, their, their desire and need to build stars of that stature, but B their, their ability to maintain those relationships when things get rocky. I mean, you have people like the DS, and whatnot. You have guys like John Jones who, you know, are really struggling right now to always follow what the company line is and be able to uh, uh, pass the drug tests and to to uh, show up and provide that access that the company wants. We know Dana White is going to be retaining a position and running the day-to-day operations in UFC. It sounds like he essentially got paid out for his shares and then bought back in. Uh, we know the uh, the the Fertitta brothers are retaining a small ownership stake, not a majority ownership, of course, in this deal. Um, it's interesting to see a name like KKR. If you ever go and read Barbarians of the Gate, all about the Nabisco, Craft uh, Nabisco acquisition, um, you, you learn a lot about you know KKR. They feature very heavily in that book. Uh, really fascinating um, kind of view of of what. <laughs> the world was like in the time of, of the corporate Raiders. Um, WWE and, and UFC, in my mind, do have a lot in common. While WWE is a public company, it's controlled by the McMahon family through their, their preferential voting shares. UFC is a private company. It's control was controlled by the majority ownership of the Fertitta brothers. But both companies are in a very similar business, promoting, promoting live entertainment events. They have exclusive talent, <laughs> so exclusive that they share talent every now and then. Um, they both distribute their content through a variety of platforms. You have pay-per-view, you have web, you have over-the-top streaming services with Fight Pass and WWE Network. You have your television contracts. They're trying to monetize their events. They both do big business through merchandising and licensing their top stars. It's the video game sales. And both companies are really heavily looking to international markets for this growth opportunity. I just told you about the PPTV deal which is going on right now, where both of them have signed up with the same streaming service in China to distribute content and try to break out even more heavily into that marketplace. And, and people have been quick to, you know, compare the two and talk about them. And I called an analyst and I asked them, you know, what is your thoughts on this UFC sale? This was prior to the sale being done. Uh, one of the things they said to me is, you know, I'm, I'm always struck by how similar they are. UFC had about $600 million of sales in 2015. WWE had about $660 million of sales, you know, within 10% of each other. Now, the profitability is way different. Um, Eric Katz, when he was writing, he's Wells Fargo analyst about UFC, he thought the profitability was more like $120 million. I know when Meltzer wrote about it in the May 16th issue, saying he had seen some foot, some uh, uh, documents from 200 to $250 million in EBITDA. Um, meanwhile, WWE's EBITDA is way lower. It was about $60 million in 2015, and that was a big improvement from you know the five-year average of less than $30 million. When you go back to the period before that, they're close to probably 90 million. But either way, whether you're comparing 90 to 120, 90 to 200, or 90 to 250, you know, we're talking about almost a four times difference. Um, the market cap for WWE is only 
about one and a half billion compared to the market cap in WWE business that uh, is, I'm sorry, WWE is one and a half billion. UFC is almost four billion, obviously, because they just got sold for that much. So uh, you can also look at the, the way they've used debt. Um, this has been well documented on some of the MMA forums, MMA boards, and so uh, a guy know, named uh, Josh Nass did a great article over at Bloody Elbow talking about WW. I'm talking about UFC debt. And it's really important to point out that, you know, they really have taken on over $400 million of debt prior to the sale here. And some of this was so they could pay out the Fertitta brothers dividends and, and to grow this business. And so they had to make enormous interest payments and debt payments in order to stay a, a, a above water in terms of what this company was doing. Uh, WWE, on the other hand, has very little debt. You know, they had maybe $22 million of debt balance in 2015, which was mainly from their aircraft. Um, they have a line of credit with the for WWE Studios, but, you know, that's, that's, that's something that they haven't even really tapped into. Uh, they have lines of credit that they just choose not to use. So a big difference kind of in how they, they dealt with debt there. But uh, UFC, of course, had a highlight right now in terms of the profitability they have. So WWE hates being compared to UFC because, you know, it doesn't look too great when you just launched a, uh, a WWE network service that essentially cannibalized, destroyed your pay-per-view business, and UFC is off making millions and millions and millions of profitable dollars on that when you're struggling to make a profit on your, your network service. Now they've turned, of course, the corner, but it, it says a lot of the difference in mentality, and I, I've always to that UFC model as example of how you could create a hybrid approach to what you're doing with review. Now, as a fan, am I excited about the WWE Network? Wonderful value, wonderful opportunity. As a businessman, well, you know, maybe it just gives me something to rail against, but uh, I always feel like there's a lot of opportunities to, to kind of tighten that corner. Um, August 2014, famously, uh, I remember this conference really, really well as the fireside chat with with Triple H and Stanley. And um, uh, I'm glad Keith Harris wrote down the quote from uh, Triple H when he said, UFC isn't a competition to us. And I explained it to our talent in the performance way center. Oh, it's very clear for me. People like UFC, they like boxing, but it's completely different from what we do and what we are. But when you look at the WWE's contracts, like you can look at Stephanie McMahon's contract. It's public. It's, it's SEC filing because she's an executive officer. And Section 11... Point three, part B mentions that when you expire or terminate, you cannot work, appear, perform in a capacity for a professional wrestling, sports, entertainment, mixed martial arts, or ultimate fighting organization, promotion or entity not controlled by the promoter for a period of time. And for her, it said one year. I think for other people, it's much shorter than that. But the point being, they write in, essentially, you can't go to UFC. Now, obviously, when they, they let certain people so sometimes they waive these requirements and whatnot, but it's not like you can quit WWE and just go be an MMA fighter. There's a big difference there, which it speaks a lot to also how Brock Lesnar had to really jump through hoops in order to get WWE sign off and permission in this big fight. Uh, when WWE talks about competition, they talk about it in their their you know their annual report, and they they just say we're in the entertainment industry and it's highly competitive. And uh, we, we are facing anything from movies to live film, television, streamed entertainment, leisure activities. We compete with entertainment companies, professional and 
college and sports leagues and the makers of branded apparel and merchandise from their tap outside. We, we have increased competition from websites and mobile and internet connected apps delivering paid and free content and stream media offerings. Many companies we compete with have greater financial reasons than we do. Um, we know WWE loves, of course, the, the credibility that a UFC uh, star brings to business. They, they you know, went gaga for uh, Ronda Rousey at WrestleMania 31. They're excited about Brock Lesnar's win at UFC 200, so much so that they, I think they were terrified in the lead-up to even mention it. Uh, we know they tried to get Paige Van Sant, uh, the Dancing with the Stars contestant and UFC fighter, to be at SummerSlam, but that didn't happen because uh, she chose to fight in August, even giving up a movie opportunity she had, um, you know, they ask them over and over again, what do you think about this UFC sale? $4 billion. When George Barrios was asked about it last month, uh, he mentioned, well, it, it amplifies the value of content, being that essentially his, his argument of being they're paying $4 billion because it's the content. And in some degree, there is. There's an opportunity in the TV rights for them. And to some degree, they aren't necessarily comparable in what we've seen for that appeal. You know, someone asked me, um, what do I think about the ad dollars for Raw, SmackDown, and, and how do they the WWE brand resonate with, with advertisers? And how much interest in diversity is there versus one year, or three years, or five years ago? Um, let's think about this. So uh, Raw now, of course, is still doing quite well on Monday nights. The problem being it's not doing nearly as well as it was doing a year ago, which suggests that we definitely have uh, diversification in terms of where the eyeballs are going. Now, you, you see work by people like Brandon Howard, who said, you know, you can look here at these Google trends, and we do see that it, it seems like WWE's interest as worldwide consumption has gone up. It's just a fact that their television ratings using these, these traditional methods has gone down. I think what that speaks to is that WWE is this continued hybrid of live entertainment and I don't want to call it scripted entertainment, but live, live sports and scripted entertainment. Let's call it that, which is uh, it, it sort of gets that ratings decline that we're going to see with, with scripted entertainment and it only gets some of the, the resonance of what a live show gets. And in terms of how do the ad dollars compare, they're, they're very low compared to uh, any live sport going on at that same kind of viewership levels. They're decent because, you know, it's still the top show for Raw, for USA. It's, it's helping USA. And, of course, USA really went to bat by, you know, uh, bringing SmackDown over. They were disappointed with the result, which is why the, the draft was essentially put together because – USA was very frustrated, NBC Universal, with the fact that you know SmackDown ratings were actually starting to decline uh, year over year, even though they were being moved to a, a premier network and to being a, a, a better time slot in theory. So I think that says a lot about USA is desperate to keep themselves as number one on cable, and they do see wrestling as a, a, a vehicle to do that. And I think advertisers feel that that you know that's going to have a you know a a let's see how to put it. it it's advertisers understand that they're buying i think um in many times the way NBCU has restructured it that they're buying a broad scope of advertising on the NBCU platform rather than buying it for wrestling itself 
And I know a few years ago that was their plan for how they wanted to restructure it. And that's a big difference than where they were five years ago. Uh, five years ago would have been 2011, would have been, uh, you know, just coming back from, uh, well, no, been, been, been the renewal, I guess, after they came back from the TNN deal. Um, but it, it's, to me, it's, it's really interesting to, to say just, you know, they have brought on some new interesting advertisers this year and in the last 24 months. I do wonder if SmackDown's going to get anywhere near the same kind of rates even going live that, that Raw had been getting. I mean, years ago, I remember seeing a, a rate buy for SmackDown when it was on network television, and you would see something like Everyone Loves Chris that would get three times the dollars of what SmackDown would get. Uh, so I think in terms of five years later, in some ways, SmackDown dollars might be up versus what they were when they were on uh, some of these smaller networks there. I would always argue that WWE is losing out on a lot of non-cable viewers by putting both of their properties on the same channel on a cable tier and leaving only Hulu, something that NBC was a third invested in, um, as the opportunity uh, to watch them outside of, of getting a cable subscription or waiting the whatever it is, four weeks, five weeks for it to show up on the WWE network. Um, one other thing uh, about just looking at, at the UFC deal is that, you know, could we see a situation like this where a group would come in and pay Vince McMahon to take a Dana White-like role, where Vince still is a head of company, but there's majority ownership by someone else? And and we've heard of that Dutch tycoon who's, you know, whispered his interest in doing this. We've heard of other people try to rattle the cage before to try to get WWE to diversify uh, majority ownership to someone outside of the McMahon family, but I just don't see it. it you know, I've, I've heard Kurt Bauer kind of on the theory of saying it would be a mega media company, you know, an ESPN, um, a, a Disney really, um, which just invested heavily in MLBAM or a Comcast, obviously with strong NBCU partnership or Netflix, um, just because it's a streaming service. And it's something new and different than what Netflix has done. You know, they don't really do live content. So would that be an opportunity for them? Be interesting to see. But um, the only other company I'd really thought about, you know, really wanting to get in the game and would having the dollars that WWE, in my mind, the, the key is that WWE needs a partnership that gives them something they don't already have, would be one of those Chinese firms. So Dolly and Wanda Group, China Media Capital, or whoever else. Um, I think that would be really important about looking at that as, as one of those cases for why they would. And I just don't see Vince McMahon vanquishing his competition, surviving in this field for 30 years, you know, as, as really the head of the company, then walking away to hand the keys to someone else and just cashing out. If there was a health change or if there was a you know, if it was a structured settlement so that Stephanie could stay in command, maybe we could see something down the line. But I would have to see it as a, an eased out thing. I, I can't imagine. And like we say, there's there's preferential um, shareholding for the McMahon family, which prevents there being any kind of um, instantaneous <laughs> uh, uh, changeover of, of waking up tomorrow and discovering that WWE had a hostile takeover. Um one last question uh, somebody else asked me about was, uh, what's my guess for the sub count in Q2 and the churn rate? Oh, goodness. Uh, hitting me 
uh, out of the blue with a, a very specific question asking, especially about churn rate and especially about sub rates. So I got to pull up really quickly um, what we, we saw in terms of what the predictions were going to be. So I think they were pretty clear that they were saying, you know, between 1.4 and 1.5 million, I want to say. Um, oh, goodness. Now I'm, now I'm being hit hard. I'll try to guess quickly. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to play a, a quick musical interlude. I'm going to go check on my dog, which is, is quite upset right now. I'm going to get myself a, a quick link. If you want to call in with any questions, comments, thoughts, queries, concerns. One of the questions I was given right before I went offline here was, what do I think the WWE churn numbers and what do I think the WWE uh, predicted numbers for Q2 are going to look like? Well, if we look at the WrestleMania press release that went out, 1.48 million to 1.55 million was the average paid subscriber number that was um, given by WWE. I think they have high confidence in that number. I expect that number to be true. Uh, when I look back at a prediction I made back in January of this year, so before I even had a lot of information, um, I came out with a prediction that said about 1.472 million in terms of what I thought would be the subscribership in June 30th, 2015, or 2016. And if we look at that, I said specifically that I thought we would see uh, 1.164 and 307,000 international and 500 for each of the two sides there. Um, so about an 80% split. We'll see whether or not that number maybe is down to 75 and uh, whether the Japan and India and Germany, specifically Germany, probably are making up a big difference there. And I'm really curious to hear if anyone asks them those questions. You know, I, I'm curious if someone's going to ask them what happened to WWE's uh, Garrett Meyer. I wonder if people are going to ask him about the UFC sale. I wonder if they're going to ask him about Brexit. These are all things I hope people ask WWE about at the next conference call. Um, I was also asked, what do I think the churn rate is going to be? Well, Q4. One churn rate was 305, I'm sorry, 358,000. Q4 was 405,000. Q3 was 376. So we see that last three quarters have been averaging a little under 400,000 a quarter. But last year, if we go back, we see that the churn on the WrestleMania quarter was 284, and the churn after that was 508. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a number that was almost twice the churn of Q1. That would, you know, be in the range. 600 to 700,000 churn. If we saw anywhere between, say, 450 to 600,000 for Q2, that would be the number I expect. If it's under 300,000, that's a miracle. If it's over 700,000, that's a travesty, uh, is, is how I'm taking the churn rate in terms of what percentage that ends up being when you really factor in all those free WWE Network um, people who are being converted I, I don't know what percentage that's going to be. That's going to be a real mess trying to understand exactly all of that. Um, goodness, you know, flustered one gets when they realize they've been on mute for 20 minutes talking. Um, what I was going to say is uh, with WWE's business here, I hope uh, whatever you're doing, I appreciate that you spent your time with me tonight. I hope that next time I, uh, have an opportunity to do this. Maybe I can bring on one of my friends, David Bixenspan, Mr. Brandon Howard, someone else who's a WWE expert who really has an interesting take on on what's been going on. If you're interested in reading some of the things that I'm doing, check me out at wrestlinginc.com where I've been writing articles. I also write articles over at seekingalpha.com. 
I've been, um, of course, on Twitter at Mukigana. You can catch me at chris.harrington at gmail.com. Pro tip, you can leave the dot off. And uh, if you're interested in talking about professional wrestling, WrestleNomics, I do hope that you, you know, continue to monitor what's been going on at on Twitter and also over at F4WOnline.com. I think there's been a great movement by a guy named Phil Donahue, not named Phil Donahue, but screen named Phil Donahue, who has been working really, really hard about getting wrestling observers uh, digitized and archived and protected from the past so that all that information that both captures the zeitgeist and the thoughts of the time, but also those tidbits of information, anything from, you know, who was writing letters back in the day, who went on to interesting positions of prominence, to, um, you know, results of, of federations long gone and being able to trace the career and the information of people to the houses and the, the gates that, you know, a lot of that history is, is hidden and muddled throughout time. I'm really glad that it's not gone and lost. I'm really glad people are working very hard to archive these yearbooks and whatnot. And I think the most important thing for people to do is make their voice heard, you know, vote on the poll and speak out, talk about the fact that we do need this information online. We need it archived. We need it searchable. We need it OCR'd. We need it um, capable for people to, you know, begin to, to comb through this information and harness and understand everything from you know, the, the roots of the boom of uh, WWF to the, the, the period of, of, you know, 2000 through 2007, which is going to come take ages before it will be online and available. But specifically the, the pre-1990 to work where we're, we're digitizing issues that, you know, weren't even in a processor, but have now been made apparent and possible for people to access and look at. And just to kind of make your, make your voice known that you're willing to support this work and you're willing to, um, uh, you know, encourage the management to, to accept the opportunity and the value of what it will bring to the site and to bring to the knowledge base as a whole. For the, I just have to commend all the hard work that, that my friend has done on both OCR and this stuff, financial resources, putting enormous amounts of time cataloging what is missing, what is available, and um, just really donating so much of himself and his, his efforts to this. It's it's an admirable, laudable work that is, you know, not being recognized, I think, to the full extent of, of the value that's being added to the knowledge base. And I, as someone who's, you know, desperate to find answers to difficult questions, it's it's overwhelming in terms of the amount of information that is coming online and, and be, being made available. And it's so much better that we give back to another in these situations rather than hoarding and, and uh, uh, judiciously uh, squeezing out just little tidbits when we could in fact just be delivering uh, enormous hordes of information for people to process and understand and answer the questions and, and the errors and the things that they care about. Um, if you're listening to this live, you've been listening on Blog Talk Radio. If you're not, you're listening on Voices of Wrestling, please support um, your local indie professional wrestling company and your local indie professional wrestling wrestling Uh This is Chris Harrington signing off again.
In a world of one million wrestling podcasts, there is a new shining star with great interviews, analysis, music, and, and me, Matt Coon, on total engagement. Go to any podcast platform to listen today. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.